0: Welcome to episode 29 of History of the Marine Corps, a new independent nation. Our last episode discussed the fate of the Alliance and the end of the American Revolution. We also discussed Lieutenant Thomas Elwood, who was the last to serve in the Continental Marines. This episode will finish up the American Revolution, talk a little bit about the Treaty of Paris, and go over some statistics about the war. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Our previous episode introduced the fate of one of the last ships during the American Revolution, the Alliance. She sustained substantial damage while traveling through the Chesapeake, and the repair costs were high. The country didn't have the funds to repair the ship, so the committee decided to sell the vessel at auction. Lieutenant Thomas Elwood was the last Marine serving on board the Alliance and in the Continental Marines. In September 1783, shortly after the Treaty of Paris was signed, Elwood was discharged as well, leaving the Continental Marines in history. The Treaty of Paris will play a big part in our next series covering the Quasi-War with France, so it's worth including. The Treaty was a fundamental document for the United States. It was a formal recognition by the British crown that the colonies were now a free, sovereign, and independent nation. Most of Britain's territory in the New World now belongs to the United States. The amount of land ceded by the British nearly doubled the area previously occupied by the colonies. The northern boundaries of the new United States were at the Great Lakes, and the southern borders were just above Florida, which was given back to Spain after the war. Britain also gave the U.S. all territory east of the Mississippi River. Handing over that much land seems a little too generous from the British, but it wasn't without reason. Before the American Revolution, the colonies opened up a whole new trading route with the British. The amount of money generated by trading with the colonies was a lot. Now that the United States was a new and independent nation, they were not under any obligation to continue trading with Britain. Part of Britain's generosity was to provide resources to the United States, which would open up the trade route again. If you recall... The whole reason this war broke out was because of taxes forced to the colonies by the British. They needed that extra cash to pay for their debt from previous wars. That debt grew significantly due to the American Revolution, and now they don't want to lose that extra source of income. It worked, and the Treaty of Paris preserved the trading partnership. The agreement also stated that Congress would earnestly recommend that each state return confiscated property belonging to British Loyalists and prevent future confiscations of Loyalist property. I highly doubt Congress followed through and gave any confiscated property back to the Loyalists, but future confiscations did not occur. The treaty also secured fishing rights for Americans off the British-Canadian coastline, and it opened up the Mississippi River to both the U.S. and Great Britain. For over seven years, the Continental Marines fought and bled for the freedom of our nation. Although a formidable force on land and sea, the Continental Marines never reached their full potential imagined by Congress. If you remember the original resolution, two battalions of Marines will be raised. The goal of these two battalions was to form an expeditionary service where detachments could be created and assigned to naval vessels. This vision did not come to fruition during the American Revolution. Samuel Nicholas was assigned the task of raising two battalions of Marines, but he never fulfilled his mission. The Continental Marines never had two battalions of Marines serving at the same time. During the entire war, about 131 officers held Continental Marine commissions. Enlisted numbers aren't exact, but the amount did not exceed 2,000. The intent of the Continental Marines was lost as well as the war progressed. Instead of a central expeditionary force, each captain of Marines took the responsibility of raising their detachment. Just like today, the size of the Continental Marines was significantly smaller than the Continental Army and the Navy. But despite not reaching their full potential, the amount they contributed was measurable and undoubtedly crucial in the defeat of the British, James Cooper, one of the first major American novelists, said, At no period of the naval history of the world is it probable that Marines were more critical than during the War of the Revolution. He goes on to say, The Marine incurs the same risk from disease and tempests, undergoes the same privations, suffers the same hardships, and sheds his blood in the same battles as the seamen, and society owes him the same rewards. It is our duty as historians to state and in no instance has the justice been more signally denied than in the case of the Honorable and Gallant Corps. Despite the success of Continental Marines, the funding for organizing the Marine Corps into a formal military branch wasn't available. A year before his retirement, Robert Morris wrote a report to Congress. It said, Although it is highly desirable to establish a respectable marine force, the funds in the public treasury say otherwise. He recommended to Congress that it is not advisable to purchase any new vessels until the states provide funds for the construction of ships, docks, naval arsenals, and the support. He retired in 1784, and Congress did not try to find someone to replace him. With Morris gone, so was the position of agent of marine. Towards the end of the war, Congress discussed reorganizing the Navy and Marines under the Articles of Confederation, but the cost was high, and due to a limited budget, they decided the new country would not move forward with the reorganization. There are some reports of a few armed American vessels serving after the war, and records do show Marines assigned on board those ships. However, they weren't serving in an organized corps. September 1783 saw the last Continental Marine, and with Lieutenant Elwood gone, the Marines were disbanded. Personally, the American Revolutions is one of my favorite times in Marine Corps history. I admit that the battles weren't as sexy as battles fought during the World Wars or Korea, but there is something about being the first. The esprit de corps Marines have isn't restricted by time. We celebrate the wins together, and we mourn the losses. So when I hear the stories and sacrifices about some of the first Marines, it just fills me with pride. The stories about the bravery of Samuel Nicholas and his 234 Marines during their first amphibious landing. Or John Trevitt and his sneaky entrance into Fort Nassau during the second raid in the Bahamas, where he and his ten men quietly took out British guards and captured the fort. Battles where Marines fought alongside George Washington, John Adams, and Paul Revere. The extreme bravery and sacrifice by Marines during the Penobscot expedition, despite the overwhelming incompetence by military leaders, which forced the Marines to land on a nearly vertical cliff wall with British soldiers firing down at them. These men believed in a free and independent America, and they made extreme sacrifices to ensure they won it. And I don't want it to sound like I think the Marines were the only ones responsible for our independence. There are countless stories about bravery by the army, sacrifices made by colonists, and clever political battles fought by our founding fathers. It's an essential time in history, not just for the United States, but the entire world. Freedom wasn't created by the United States, nor was it unique, but this single event changed the course of human rights. But it came with a price. The total number of engagements for this war, and this includes both naval and military engagements, was 1,546. When the war started, Great Britain had a total population of about 8 million. The colonies had a population of 2.5 million, but 20% of that population was slaves. The number of Americans wounded in the Revolutionary War was 8,445. But the number of American deaths during the Revolutionary War varies depending on who you ask. The Department of Defense puts the number of deaths at 4,435. But Howard Henry Peckham, the author of The Toll of Independence, Engagements and Battle Casualties of the American Revolution, provides really convincing data that the accepted number of casualties are lower than what they should be. Professor Peckham and his team placed the figure at 6,824 American battle deaths as a verifiable minimum. He estimates that this number is too low and the actual number is closer to 8,000. And these were just the number of Americans who died in battle. Deaths in camp and men who died in captivity pushed that number to more than 25,000 making the American Revolution only second to the Civil War in fatalities per capita. Marines had a fair amount of battle deaths compared to their size, but the Continental Army makes up 90% of those deaths. That should give you an idea of the size of these land battles. The Battle of Long Island had 10,000 American soldiers and 20,000 British and Hessian forces alone. There are numerous heroic tales out of that battle alone. You may have heard myths about service members in the Fife and Drum Corps only being young boys. There were a few examples of boys enlisting and serving as fifers, however the majority who served as drummers and fifers were men. The average age of a drummer was around 19, and fifers were around 17. Boys did enlist in the Continental Military, and served in positions other than in the Drum and Fife Corps. One of the youngest boys to join the Continental Army was Israel Track, son of a lieutenant who volunteered for service and served as a cook's helper and messenger at the age of 10. On the other end of the spectrum, some old-timers were helping out as well. Probably the most famous was General Israel Putnam, who served in the Continental Army at the age of 57. Not that 57's old. The oldest known colonial combatant would see action during the Battle of Lexington. Samuel Whitmore was 78 years old during this engagement. He was farming in his fields when he noticed British soldiers heading in his direction to help the retreating army. Whitmore loaded his musket and two dueling pistols and decided to take on the army himself. He was able to fire five shots, which killed a man. The army started to advance on his location, so he drew his two dueling pistols out and killed two more men. When the British soldiers finally reached him, he drew his sword and attacked. He was shot in the face by a British soldier and stabbed multiple times by bayonets. They left him for dead, but miraculously this hard charger survived and lived another 18 years. During the same battle, British General Gage sent a wagon loaded with ammunition to resupply his army. The carriage only contained a guard force of nine men. During the trip, they met a group of militiamen who were too old to take up arms in Lexington, but decided to help out by protecting the roads near their homes. They ordered the wagon to stop. When the officer denied their request, they opened fire, killing two sergeants and wounding the officer. The other six men would throw their muskets into a nearby pond and run. While they were retreating, they came across an older woman who was digging dandelions nearby. They surrendered to her, and she took the six soldiers to Captain Ephraim Frost's home, who served in the local militia. This capture was an embarrassment to the British military. When the word of the surrender reached Great Britain, the media had a field day. One newspaper had the line, If one old Yankee woman can take six grenadiers, how many soldiers will it require to conquer America? During the entire American Revolution, about 250,000 soldiers, sailors, marines, and militiamen served. However, there were never more than 50,000 serving at any one time. Our troops were supplemented by our primary allies of the war, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. France was our biggest ally, and sent about 12,000 soldiers and 32,000 sailors to help us out. On the other side of the field, The estimated British strength during the American Revolution was 56,000. The British Army had support from 30,000 German soldiers provided by various German states, about 13,000 Native Americans, and 19,000 British Loyalists. War has always been a significant debt factor for the United States. Congress couldn't pay for the Revolutionary War with massive tax raises. That's the whole reason we were fighting for our independence in the first place. So instead of taxing the colonists during the war, the United States borrowed money from nations that supported our fight for freedom. The Founding Fathers conducted negotiations with other countries. Benjamin Franklin was able to secure loans of over $2 million from the French government, and President John Adams securing a loan from Dutch bankers. We also borrowed from domestic creditors. While the war was still going on in 1781, Congress established the U.S. Department of Finance. When the war ended two years later, the Department of Finance reported U.S. debt to the American public for the first time. The bill was $43 million, and to pay for that debt, Congress decided to raise taxes. The American Revolution put us into substantial debt, but our allies, the French, had it way worse. France supplied most of the financial support for the United States during the Revolution. At the end of the war, they racked up the equivalent of 100 million pounds to support the colonies. Their total debt after the war was over 250 million pounds. This debt was a significant issue for France, and the country struggled to pay their bills. This economic disaster eventually led to the financial crisis of 1786, and ultimately the French Revolution of 1789. The British spent a lot on this war as well, and they racked up a total of more than 80 million pounds. Episodes 5 and 6 discuss the events leading up to the Revolutionary War. During those episodes, we talked about Great Britain's attempt to tax the colonies to pay for the massive debt incurred by previous wars. The cost of the American Revolution resulted in higher losses monetarily, and with land ownership. By the end of the war, Great Britain had a total national debt of 250 million pounds. Now these figures don't seem like a lot today, but to give you an idea at that size, the British population had about 20 pounds of debt per capita versus their average annual income of 11 pounds per capita. The deficit alone cost Britain 5 million pounds annually when government revenue was only $8 Great Britain used the same solution all countries do in this scenario, and raised taxes. Now that we are a new nation, we need a new flag. The Continental Colors, also called the Grand Union Flag, is widely recognized as the nation's first flag. I have it up on historyofthemarinecore.com. if you're not familiar with it. The flag seems identical to the East India Company's flag, which was at the center of some of the Townsend Acts that started this whole war. Documents don't exist confirming that the East India Company's flag influenced the design of the Continental Colors, but it seems too similar not to. This is only my opinion, so take it with a grain of salt, but the size and footprint of the East India Company was unreal. At their height, their equivalent today would be worth more than $7.9 trillion. They also had a private army twice the size of Britain and ruled large parts of India through military power. But except for two or three ports, colonists didn't see the flag too often. However, some of our founding fathers, which includes Benjamin Franklin, were very familiar with the flag. Benjamin Franklin attended a dinner with George Washington on December 13, 1775. Allegedly, the two talked about the flag and Franklin supposedly told Washington, While the field of your flag must be new in the details of its design, it needs not be entirely new in its elements. There is already in use a flag. I refer to the flag of the East India Company. I couldn't find any documentation on this, so it's difficult to confirm. The most accepted explanation on why the two flags looked the same is simply that the similarity was a coincidence. When the war first kicked off, Not everyone agreed that the best way forward was independence. The majority of colonists, and this included most members in Congress, did not want independence from Great Britain. Yes, they wanted their freedom, and they did agree with the taxation without representation argument. However, they envisioned a scenario where negotiations with Britain were still an option. The Union Jack is assumed to show allegiance to Great Britain. At the same time, the 13 stripes simultaneously symbolize maintaining the rights of the United Colonies. On June 14, 1777, the Continental Congress approved the design of the first official national flag. The Flag Resolution of 1777 was the first time the iconic stars and stripes were combined. The resolution stated, Resolve that the flag of the United States be 13 stripes. Alternate red and white, that the union is 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. If you noticed, the resolution did not specify if the stripe should be horizontal or vertical, the location of the canton, which is the blue part of the flag, and star pattern, or even how many points the stars should have. This resulted in multiple designs of the flag. Legend has it that Betsy Ross designed the first official flag. But historians haven't been able to verify that theory. This story was started by her grandson, William Canby, while he was speaking to the Historical Society of Philadelphia. He stated that she told him she coordinated with George Washington to design the flag. Betsy Ross was a seamstress, and she did make flags, and she did know George Washington. However, Washington never mentions this event in his journals, and there's no documentation anywhere to support this. But there is some evidence to suggest that a Continental Congress member from New Jersey, Francis Hopkins, was responsible for the first official flag. However, the evidence is still a little spotty. The only evidence we have that points to Hopkins is a bill he submitted to Congress. It said, For designing the flag, you owe me two casks of ale. Congress refused to pay him. They stated that he wasn't the only person involved in the design of the flag, and paying only him wouldn't be fair. There isn't a picture, written description, or even a sketch of the original flag. So we don't know what the actual original flag truly looked like, but the flag resolution does provide some insight. It called for stripes, and the origin of the stripes might have originated from the Sons of Liberty flag. The Sons of Liberty played a crucial role in the American Revolution. They included great patriots, such as John Adams, John Hancock, and Samuel Adams. They also created a flag with red and white stripes, similar to what we see on our flag today. The Canton is assumed to have originated from Washington's headquarters flag. His flag has six-pointed stars, as opposed to today's five-pointed stars. And arranged in the 32323 format. The first row contained three stars, second, two stars, third, three stars, and so on. The picture is up on historyofthemarinecore.com if you want to take a look. Many people believe that the first flag was a combination of the Sons of Liberty flag and Washington's headquarters flag. You'll find a lot of interpretations of what the colors red, white, and blue actually mean. The reality is that there isn't any evidence that supports the creator selected the colors based on any significance. The relationship between the colors and the meaning was handed down years after the flag resolution of 1777. It's more than likely that the colors were chosen because they were the king's colors, which was the established flag of each colony and flew over every colonial capital. Regardless of who created the flag or what the original design looked like, we still celebrate the passing of this resolution every year, and it's known as Flag Day. There is no doubt that our flag has been a powerful symbol for American civilians and the military since the beginning of this country. On September 3rd, 1783, the 13 colonies were officially recognized as an independent nation. The world didn't see us under the political control of Great Britain anymore. We were free, but we weren't free of problems. We had massive debt, we didn't have a naval fleet, and the marines were disbanded. Our next episode will discuss the events leading up to the first full war as an independent nation, the Quasi-War, which was an undeclared war by France against the United States and fought entirely at sea. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're moving away from the American Revolution and towards the Quasi-War. This was a war fought against the French, who were one of our strongest allies during the American Revolution. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecore.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.